Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. This is How You Do It, the mashup series from the Guilty Feminist and Media Storm, where we celebrate the people working to make the media a little bit better. I'm Matilda Mallinson. And I'm Helena Wadia, and we're the hosts of Media Storm, the podcast that hands the mic to people with lived experience and calls out what the mainstream media could be doing better to report on marginalised groups. Our guest this week is the BBC World Service's first global gender and identity correspondent. She covers issues concerning women's rights and LGBT plus communities and race and ethnicity for the BBC's 41 language services. It's Megan Mohan. Ah, wow. I was laughing at that, that written introduction by the press department you of looked, the BBC. Um, you were just sitting opposite us cringing. Yeah, you were. But what, you shouldn't be. What would you have uh, have changed about it if it was a submit? I mean, by obviously you? the top line is sexy. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I the BBC's try. sexiest yeah, reporter. The BBC is as sexy. Honestly, I won't watch that. Turn into something now. <laughs> well, we wanted to have you on for so many reasons, and it's that. You have taken on this trailblazing role by being the BBC's first gender and identity correspondent. So tell us, did you happen upon that role or was it a role that you helped to develop yourself? No, I get asked that all the time, actually, and I wish I had helped develop it. No, it was advertised in the BBC for part of the World Service and it was advertised in... 2018, I got the job at the end of 2018, and they advertised for this job to promote the work of the 41 language services within the BBC. And at that time, we didn't know that gender and identity meant gender identity. It's like, it's like spectrum. Of, the culture like, war. Of the culture. I had no idea. I thought it was I the job that was advertised. But then when it was announced, then I just tweeted it. And I, I can't remember who it was. Some media editor retweeted me. And then suddenly there's like storm of gender and identity what does this mean and as soon as that happened it was such a shock to all of us because we don't do UK news we don't talk about what is happening you know north of the equator generally so it was such a shock it was such a shock to us you know kind of what follows so the role 
in a UK context meant something totally different to how the role had been defined for global context. Exactly, exactly. We were telling stories of underrepresented communities as we're seeing, you know, Iran, this our Persian service could have could have told you the seeds of this uprising from years and years ago that it was, you know, bubbling and happening and we just didn't know of all the articles that followed since, you know, after after announcing it what the what the global north meant by gender and identity or gender identity and mm. and have those worlds come come together at all no. or okay or is it yeah. still received very differently we keep it separate because my remit is still to to amplify those voices to talk about those voices from women and lgbt communities and ethnicities in the global south and those are people who aren't arguing about bathrooms yeah <laughs> that is you know. what is really refreshing right now is yeah. you are able to tell us the impact and the importance of these stories in a context totally removed from the cultural context in which we discuss those issues today and where like you're pointing out the topics of significance have been so sidelined to topics of like heated political binary debate. I think in certain countries in the global north, you can become distracted or a news um, cycle can become distracted by what, you know, a few columnists or a few influential social media accounts say, and that sort of moves the thumb to a discussion that turns into a news cycle. Now, that is very different from what's happening in countries where people don't even have access to tell those stories. So, so for example, I'll tell you one example of a story that we did, which I'm really proud of in Burundi, in the Great Lakes near Congo and, and Rwanda. I was seeing this meme popping up again and again, sent between women. And in the end, I got in touch with a few of these women. It turned out it was a secret symbol to show that you're gay mm. to each other, to show that you're lesbians. And these are all women that were married to men because it's illegal to be gay. And, and they were living the secret double life where they were they were reaching out to each other using like a very famous popular culture lesbian um term that you that I think we might recognize but didn't know is a meme and then so we decided to to how do we tell the stories that we don't reveal these yeah, women yeah. and at the same time we reach their community and so it's something that they and you know I'm I'm born in India you know I I lived there and moved here when I was, you know, nine years old. So I know what it's like to come from a country and see yourself in the news and go, that is, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, that's not my people. That's not how we communicate. It's, it's almost like you're explaining, you know, explaining us to people who don't understand, which is fine, but you should still tell a story that I understand <laughs> about my own people. And I try to keep that in this remit of, of minority communities. We wanted to keep the spirit of what people are, which is people are messy, people are funny, people have dark humor, people have these threads of inconsistency. And those are the elements we want. We don't want to get the sound bites of the worst thing one person has been through. That's not the sum of the story that stories that we want to tell. Well, we did an episode in our first series of Media Storm about how transgender plus 
people are portrayed in the UK media. And you, you've you mentioned already in this conversation and you've reported quite widely on trans rights and intersex rights. And we've kind of noticed in your work, you approach it in a different way to how the mainstream media approaches, you know, when they talk about the trans community and so-called issues within the communities. When you cover this community, what do you make sure that, that you do? When I cover any communities, I just want the people that we're speaking to to be central to the story. So I try and empathetically convey what a person has lived through and they become the vehicle for the story. And it's their story at the end of the day. They're not politicians or, you know, big corporations that we need to hold to account. These are people with lived experiences. So that's kind of how I approach any story when I'm dealing with a royal person. <laughs> and, and, and you know, they all come with certain challenges. So we did a story about they were they had gendered days to go out during COVID in Colombia to the supermarket. So there were men's days and women's days. That's the way that they controlled it. But then what ended up happening is trans women would go out in women's days and get completely humiliated by the police. And I was hearing from trans women in in Colombia, so I decided to just write a story about the experience of, of one woman and then found out that, you know, at least a dozen women had experienced this. And that became the online article. So it's really, that's really how the point at which it starts. And I really don't want Twitter um, to be the, the start of a story for me. I, I think that that's, that's something that I take as a no-go. That's not the starting point of, of the birth of a story. Totally. But already this grassroots approach you have to story finding mm. and how it starts with the people whose experiences are at the center of these stories, already that's very different to so much mainstream media output, which is often, especially today, just really dependent on press releases and tweets by political or industry leaders and multinational corporations and partly due to time constraints and partly due to clickbait requirements, you do see content being churned out often without that grassroots approach considered at all. You mentioned earlier that you grew up in India. Do you think that has formed part of the reason of why you were first attracted to telling stories outside of the UK? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But also I grew up on the internet, so the, the whole world becomes your um, playground. And, you know, we were, I think we were all really lucky that way in that we had all these barriers broken for us. And especially if you're an awkward kid, which I think a lot of storytellers are. <laughs> so like you, you kind of, you, you, you sort of inhabit a lot of communities online and, and you see the nuances of people um, in, in ways that they might not reveal to you face to face straight away. And I think definitely coming from a community um, like that and then moving here and the, just how challenging it was moving here, how hard it was for my parents. We lived in one room in um, the Indian YMCA in Tottenham Court Road and it's really hard. It was really tough. I just remember school not being fun and just a lot of disappearing into books and disappearing into online and and kind of learning to enjoy my own company. And I think actually that that helped for, for so much of my work because 
I feel comfortable anywhere and I can make myself comfortable anywhere without, you know, someone having to fuss over me or anything. And that that helps with once you don't appear an intimidating person, you're it's amazing what people will tell you and how much they'll open up to you. And then suddenly you have a story that'll do really well. <laughs> so let's talk about some of those stories. You have managed to secure interviews with such incredible people spanning all parts of the world. And it's not just some of the people you've been telling us about so far. It's names like Finland's all women coalition government, Samoa's first woman prime minister, even the pop icon Billie Eilish. Who? <laughs> so who's been your favorite ever interview? Oh, it's, it's, I, I actually, actually my, my favorite piece and interviews that we did was in Chile. We, we went to the world's first school for transgender children. Um, and I loved doing that piece. I loved spending time with those children and their siblings and their families. And it was just lovely to spend all that time with them and and how creative, seeing how creative and expressive they were at that age. What an amazing job you have. I think what's so important about quite a lot of the stories you've mentioned, but that one in particular about the school for transgender children is just like showing the joy in those communities. Because when we consume the news, it's always a lot of negative stuff. Why is it so important to also just show that kind of everyday joy? Isn't it, Rahan? I feel like when you hear these stories about about minority communities, you you get these two extremes. One is like this woman where, or or this you know minority where something awful has happened to her, the unthinkable. It's and it is so devoid of your understanding that you are she has bec- or they have become the experience. Secondly, you get this lionized woman that is or person who is not something you recognize either. You know, the either it's like the first person to go to the moon or the only woman in the village to have won the lottery and married this really hot person. Or like, you know, and it's not, I, and then it feels like these two extremes of storytelling in minorities, which is deemed newsworthy. But the reality is everyone's experience is all those highs and lows in between. And actually really good storytelling and really good current affairs and the thrust of what matters now and what could shape our future doesn't have to rely on these kind of tired threads that you're tied to just because everyone watches the same programs and follows all the same people on Twitter and just thinks there's three ways in which you can deliver a story. On that note, we will take a break, have a chocolate biscuit and Come back in a hot second. Is that a saying? A hot second? A hot minute? Do we actually have any chocolate No. Biscuits? Why did you say chocolate biscuits? I was like, where are the chocolate biscuits? We've always said <laughs> chocolate biscuit. I would love a chocolate biscuit. Welcome back to This Is How You Do It. Now, Mega, I'm slightly biased because I'm also part of this uh, wonderful group, but you worked with the charity Level Up to create media guidelines on how to report responsibly on stories of domestic abuse and violence. How and why did you go about creating those guidelines? 
oh, I really can't take credit for creating the guidelines. And this, this was created by Janie Starling. Actually devised guidelines which are journalistically so robust in honoring the spirit of women because dead women don't have a right of reply, showing that violence against women is a public health emergency and not a quote-unquote woman's story, which is something that is mentioned all the time in newsrooms. I actually challenged somebody about this the other day. I was just like, what is a woman's story to you? And it was like rape, um, babies, periods. Wow. <laughs> and what is a, man, what is a man's well, yeah, story what's a man's to everything, everything that happens in the world? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I really don't think it's maliciousness on the part of people not taking um, sensitive reporting seriously. I think it's just a lack of knowledge and, and a lack of priority. And a lack of empathy, right? Because I think what a lot of journalists struggle with when reporting on something that has such uh, horrible details is I, th- I do think journalists can get quite numb to horrible stories yeah. because we're around them 24-7. Yeah. Lack of empathy is a huge issue. This is actually so valuable for me right now because the day after tomorrow, I'm doing a training day with survivors of domestic abuse where I'm giving them a media training. So we'll be doing some drill interviews. Speaking to a journalist who's going into that situation, what's like the main do and the main don't that you would advise? I always put in at least you know, 15 minutes beforehand, and at least 20 minutes afterhand, just to bring the temperature down from what we've spoken about. I don't like ending interviews with, and what's the positive? Because, and the reason why is because I think we should be uncomfortable sometimes. You know, we deal with serious subjects. We're not trying to make things palatable for the audience sitting at home. Actually, it's okay for them to be uncomfortable sometimes. That's okay. They'll survive that. But I think for the people that I speak to, I always leave time so that they don't feel that this transaction was that, this transaction I went to, just got back from Honduras. It's one of the only countries in the world that's banned the morning after pill. What means that there's this um, illegal world of men selling these pills that you insert vaginally and induce an abortion. It's incredibly dangerous. And women are buying these pills in their hundreds if not thousands and uh, ending up in incredibly vulnerable situations because they have no other options for safe you know healthcare when it comes to not wanting to go through with a pregnancy and uh, talked to one woman who been you know raped all through her childhood by a family member got pregnant has kept the child and she's never told anyone this before in doing that interview with her, what I didn't want to do is we weren't just coming in just to get that one line, that one story that'll go the top line. Which I just, I've, yeah. I've seen done so many times. I mean, I um, set up this organization called Refugee Media Center a couple of years ago, which is designed to connect journalists with people who have lived experience of displacement in order to get that perspective, which is so often missing from news reports on the topic. And I have had some really bad experiences with reporters where they have put people through really traumatic interviews and then extracted single lines, included them completely decontextualized and in a way that won't even serve the issue that person is speaking to. If that person is speaking to problems with the Afghan resettlement scheme, that line has been taken purely to say, oh, we want to point to 
how sexist and evil the Taliban is. Yeah. And it's like, they would not have agreed to an interview if it was purely to serve your very specific news agenda, which isn't representative of their story. It, it's just, it happens all the time. It's just really upsetting. Not everyone does this, though. There are so many brilliant journalists who don't do it, and they become inspirations for me. But there's there's enough that do do it, and you can see that, I think. You can see the ones that do, and you can see the ones that don't serve communities. And who miss out lived experience voices. It's harder when you work on, on Daily News, though. I have worked in Daily News, and, you know, everything was like a... Two and a half minute slot for everything. I remember what someone said to me, find a stalker. <laughs> like, oh, God. At 6am, it's like the world's first clinic for stalking had opened and someone at 6am goes, find me a stalker by 10am. Mm. If that just doesn't sum up the, the UK media, I don't know what does, find me a stalker by 10am. Yeah. been some of the funniest or most ridiculous responses to a piece of journalism that you have seen? The funniest response I've... um, So I did a a piece about the lived experience of women psychopaths um, recently. And the reason why I did that, because the standard testing for psychopathy is for a violent prison-based male population. So the standard of measuring this antisocial personality disorder doesn't include the the spectrum of the condition and hasn't looked at factors in which women are affected by. So I I wanted to do a deep dive into that. And someone, and I I won't name who it is or or where they work, but they shared it on social media going, oh my days, the BBC's gender and identity correspondent, quote marks, has uh, done a piece on why we should love evil people. It's like they want to be defunded. (laughs) The BBC is now telling us that we should feel sorry for psychopaths. (laughs) So many things with this woman's tweet, where she has obviously just been looking to make a case for defunding the BBC. And she's like, oh, what is going to stir the pot? We can throw in this, quote, gender and identity correspondent. And let's say that She's she's a psychopath sympath. It's it's not just that she's you know manipulating what the story is about to serve a very kind of binary culture war agenda. It's also how it cheapens the reporting that you've done on psychopathy because what you pointed out when you explained the story is that this is a mental disorder and it's actually one of the areas that we found on MediaStorm there is such a total lack of understanding around and how harmful that can be for healthcare so we did do an episode on pedophilia again in our lingo pedophilia is often just conflated or confused with child molesting which is a crime Pedophilia is a clinical disorder. It is not necessarily something that is acted on. And actually, I think something like 60% of child molesting is nothing to do with pedophilia. Psychopathy, like pedophilia, is not necessarily a choice. And yes, while it can be very socially harmful, the individual is not the problem in the way that we would describe problem with moral ideas about, about individual choice. And so I think that if she has read your story the whole way down, and she's someone who's intelligent enough to grasp the complexities of that, she is feeding such a harmful naivety, willful ignorance 
that is so common in our media culture by which we we're obsessed with demonizing individuals and not yeah. pointing to systemic problems. Yeah. I mean, I'm so excited to go and read that story. It's one of the most pioneering examples of, of tackling stigma that I can think of, like taking on psychopathy. Thank you. And I, I, I do think you're right in, in terms of our culture demonizing individuals has it always been like this I don't I don't know I mean all stories we tell we love to have heroes and villains don't we it's how we're Mm. taught to understand the world when we're children do you know in in some ways that's kind of uh, you can pitch stories easier when there are heroes and villains as Mm. well like that's why it was really hard to talk about the civil war in Sudan whereas it was easier to pitch stories about the genocide in Darfur because that people could get that head around the fact that, you know, an ethnicity were being wiped out by these evil people, as opposed to this 40-year-long conflict around oil and tribal factions, but it's not really tribal. You try and pitch the story and then you can see everyone's eyes glaze over. I, don't, I just don't know why we do that. I don't, I don't know why we demonize individuals. I, don't, I, I, I hate the fact that this mm. model has become successful in, in storytelling. It's not just storytelling as well, though. It, like, it's policy, isn't it? it? It's tough on crime responses to issues that are just as much fueled by socioeconomic inequality and racism and broken education systems. You know, we, we respond to these complicated systemic problems we look at them and we're like, ah, that's way too hard to fix with policy. But let's just be tough on crime. Let's throw more and more people in jail. And then we don't have to deal with like these really tricky underlying problems that all contribute in myriad ways. So I think it's it's a, yeah, we like heroes and villains in our storytelling, but we also like quick fixes in our solutions. We like comfortable endings. Not everything has to be a comfortable ending. Sometimes we just need to work it through. Final question? Final question. Should we make it really uncomfortable? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is the final question here on This Is How You Do It. We like to ask every person who has been in the hot seat. We have a very stingy genie here. Mm. So instead of three wishes, you get one wish. One wish. And it's one wish to change anything you like about the mainstream media. What would it be? I would like if we existed in true meritocracy. I've seen people who have immense talent, who are not nurtured, you know, who speak four or five languages. I wish that we nurtured more people and you don't have to be perfect straight away. Sometimes we discount people really early. We don't pull, you know, we don't necessarily open the door behind us. I I have seen people take credit where they should share it. Like I try to be really super transparent in everything that we do in terms of who worked on it, whose idea it was. I really hope we break it. But that is a huge thing, right? There is so much competition within the world of journalism that sometimes that gets put ahead of telling important stories. That's also a big stem of like lack of diversity in newsrooms because they're like, oh, we've already got one Indian woman. Oh, we've already got one black guy. They were all fighting for that one spot. Yeah. We've got somebody well, now. we've done that now. Yeah, so, so that's done. Of... So we don't need to nurture any anymore. Mm. Megamoan, thank you so much for joining us on This Is How You Do It. Before we leave, 
Have you got anything you would like to plug? And can you tell us where we can follow you? It would be great if people went to my website, because that's where I'm going to start putting my latest info. Who knows where social media platforms are going to exist (laughs) by the time this podcast comes out. So it's just megamohan.com. And if you can support the world service, just, just tune in to the stories that we're telling from communities that are harder to reach and um, just keep an, you know, keep your eye global. That's all from this series of This Is How You Do It and this series of Media Storm. But don't worry, we've got one final bonus episode for you. Next week, we'll be releasing the second half of our live show recorded at London Podcast Festival on comedy and cancel culture with the Guilty Feminist's very own Deborah Francis-White. And we're busy cooking up some exciting plans for MediaStorm Series 3, so we'll see you in the new year. Get in touch if you have any idea for a topic you'd like us to cover. And don't forget to listen to the latest episode of The Guilty Feminist about safety online with Kima Bob and special guest Sei Akiwowo. Mm-hmm.